if you drop it 10 times, you can't win. Welcome to Clocker Counter. I'm James Wiseman, and with me is Ryan Young. We're coming to you from Prague, Czech Republic, attending this year's Frisbeer event. Do you remember which year this is? Year 16? 16. Year 16 of Frisbeer. It's kind of hard to imagine because I've now been playing for 15 years, which seems incredible. So in my heart, Frisbeer is still a relatively new event, but it is somehow 16 years old and going strong. So today we're going to talk first about an experiment that happened at Frisbeer with the GM format, one that we had discussed hypothetically a few podcasts ago. And then we're each going to do our five takeaways from the event. But first, Ryan, something historic happened today. <laughs> I absolutely lost it when this occurred. I don't think anyone understood why I was so excited. <laughs> so tell everyone what happened today. I caught a double spinning barrel guide in competition for the first time ever. And I don't know if we've actually talked about this on the podcast before, but is it true that somehow you, Ryan Young, one of the winningest players in freestyle history, has never caught a double spinning barrel guide in competition before? It's true because I always just go for the double barrel. It's like 90% of the diff or like, like triple the amount of security. So just to set the stage, I had told you, or like we had talked about how there's really no reason you shouldn't hit one at this finals. And honestly, I kind of forgot about it. So your first round, I didn't even think about it, but I knew you hadn't hit one. And then your second round, you went for one and you dropped it. So before your third round, I was sitting with Edo Turi. And before you went on, I told Edo that you had never caught a double draw guys before, but you were going to go for it in this round. And he just did not believe me. And not in like a casual way, like no way, that seems impossible. I can tell you verified this to his face <laughs> after the round. He just thought I was pulling one. Or like maybe <laughs> he thought I was just saying like I've never seen you hit one before or something. But I was like, no, no, like this this is something Ryan told me. I didn't believe it either. <laughs> but it was pretty awesome and it got me very, very fired up. So congratulations. <laughs> How soon do you think you'll hit your next one? I was thinking about doing it in the next routine I had, but I just thought I didn't have the opportunity. So I'll do it again in Poland for sure. Do you think it's one of those things that now the floodgates have opened and like the double barrel guide is just in hand? I think so. It's gotten way more reliable. Actually, what made it more reliable is teaching someone else how to barrel guide us. Was that Andre? It was Ilka. Ilka. Oh yeah, that's right. Y'all were doing a lot of sessions yeah. teaching you how to do that. That makes sense. Like what are the things you were teaching that you applied to yourself? The biggest one is the set angle. So it's different from all the other sets where it's like a nose down set. So it dives into the pocket. Like with the barrel, it can be nose up and float away. So the window's big enough to catch it. That's interesting you say that because I was thinking you were going to say the opposite, that it can be very flat and oh. it's still fine. But I don't really know that. I don't think anyone has a double barrel guy as a free move, but that's a move I've never really had to think that hard about. We both have. You have a very unique double barrel guide as window. And I tell people that. So when they try and mimic you, I'm like, no, only James can catch it that way. I think that's a good thing, but I'm not totally sure. I'll ask you more about that later, <laughs> but we'll move on for now. So now let's talk about, I would give the results or something, but I don't really have them nearby and I feel like we'll get it wrong. So you should check that online. Uh, and I think some of our five things might include results. 
at least, <laughs> right? I don't have any result-oriented observations. Okay. Well, I'll just throw out a couple okay. highlights then. So Katie pretty much swept her stuff. I don't want to get anything wrong, but I know she won mixed. I think she won women's mm -hmm. and she won turbo shred at least. Yeah. I don't know if there's some other division that I'm missing. So she had a great tournament. Edo won everything except for co-op. So turbo shred pairs and mixed because he and Katie were partners. He played pretty well. I'd say one like top line thing. It's not one of the things like no one played that well this tournament. <laughs> Am I wrong about that? Well, there's some like exceptions, like mid-level players who like outperformed, mm -hmm. but like the top line. I don't think there was like performances we'll yeah. never forget and we'll like look back on and rewatch over and over again, not to like offend anybody. I don't think anyone's going to be like upset that I said that. Um, but the real highlight, and I will start by saying <laughs> I deplore award ceremonies. I've always hated them. Even when I knew I was going to win everything, I was worried that, because one thing that I've noticed for me is the number of people who came up to me to ask me, like, how is it now that you're not competing? I'm just like, it's fine. Like, <laughs> I've already not competed at several events, and that hasn't a big deal. But I was, like, hyper aware that I wonder if people are going to see how annoyed I look at this award ceremony and think it's because I'm not competing, because they've forgotten that I always look annoyed at award ceremonies, because especially at first beer, these are my last precious hours to jam, and I have to sit down and listen to people droning on about results that especially the last few years like i usually already knew anyways this award ceremony was an exception because although i was annoyed for the first 90 percent of it when thomas nutsi won open co-op with you and jakob kostel watching his <laughs> reaction was incredibly moving and very exciting and one quick note about that i forgot like i really just wasn't paying attention and they announced the results, and I saw Nutsy like slam his hand on the ground and go like, "No!" And I was like, "Oh no! Is there some controversy? Like, who did he think was supposed to win?" And I thought like he was really like upset about something. But then I was like, "Oh no! Yeah, like he played with Ryan and Jacob, and they won." And he was so excited, and I he made it sound like he's been to most or almost every, and maybe even every first beer. And he's someone for a long time I really thought was like one of the most creative players and one of the best players, but he hasn't necessarily like won a lot. And I thought that was really excited. Your thoughts, Ryan? Yeah. He told me it was his first major win. Yeah. That's kind of hard to believe because he really is kind of a mainstay of our sport. Like he goes to a lot of events, he jams a lot. I think I've said before that I've taken like probably as much from Nutsi as like almost anybody. Like if I named like my biggest influence, it'd be the ones you expect, like Matt Gothier and Fabio Sana. And then like a surprising entrant on my list would probably be Nutsi. I think he's just super creative and I steal from him all the time. So <coughs> that was pretty awesome. One other side, because I probably will be coughing. I was sick this whole tournament and I apologize to anyone I got sick. I've been in denial about it. Someone floated a theory that the gym gives people sore throats and I kind of just latched onto that. And I was like, yeah, I just have a sore throat from the gym. And then I think I thought I was just getting really old. And I was like, this is what you, it feels like when you're old and you play a lot, like your body hurts. But I think last night shivering in my bed for an hour told me that probably I've been sick. So I really hope I didn't get anybody this sick. This is the perfect time for us to do it in-person podcast. I know, yeah. I know. But like, you're already sick. <laughs> okay. Like, it's going to happen. <laughs> um, 
And actually, like, it seems like a bunch of people were sick, but also in, like, different ways. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, like, Benno was sick. Like, Elika was sick. So everyone, Freddie was sick. Freddie was sick. Like, everyone got sick, but we all had different illnesses. So at least there's that. <clears throat> Paul Kenny wouldn't even stand next to me. Bless his heart. Um, mm -hmm. But hopefully everyone gets home well. And if you are sick, you get you get better soon. Um, also, like, makes me feel better because, like, you heard me all week and I was like, man, like, I really think I'm just, like, getting old now. And, like, <laughs> yeah. I was telling you, like, maybe, like, all the miles have caught up, like, when Matt started, like, when Matt started breaking down and happened very fast. And I was like, maybe that's how, and that, that still is how possibility. But, like, last night I could not get out of bed and move from, like, soreness. But today is a whole extra day and I feel, like, way better, like, walking around. Anyways, just a side note. And also for anyone wondering, because I saw some questions about what happened to Benno and Mateusz, but they didn't uh, get to play. Also, one other little note about the sickness thing, because it was kind of funny. So Benno was supposed to play with Tom Leitner and Christian Lamrad. And he back, like, he was really, like, about, they were about to play when he was like, guys, I, like, I can't, I'm really sick. And he backed out, and, like, Tom came up to me and was like, will you play golf with us? And I was like, this would be a very bad precedent to set at my first majors post-retirement. To hop in the ring with Tom Leitner and Christian Lambrad. So I said no, and they played with Dexter, and I think Dexter did a great job playing with him. But there was definitely like a, my, my biblical analogies aren't very good. There's a little bit of like the devil talking to Jesus on the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I could definitely play with Tom Leitner and Christian right now, and we'd have a very good chance of winning this. But uh, I, I resisted the urge. Um, okay, so without let's talk about the GM format. I'll just open by saying I didn't tell anyone I was coming to the tournament except Jakob. I bought my ticket like a week ago. So like no one knew I was coming, including you. And you told me like the day before Frisbeer that y'all were gonna try the GM format. I floated in the podcast. So partially this is I'm gonna say it was kind of a failure, but there's a lot we learned from it. So I'm sort of trying to protect myself here to say I had very little involvement <laughs> with how it, was, okay. how it was implemented. But now I'll hand it up to you to describe what we did, how we did it, and like what worked well and like what didn't work. Okay. So we tried to do a competitive format that involved jamming. And what we did is we got everyone together and we split them into groups and they were somewhat seated. So it was like beginners and experienced players in each group. And every round we would have all the groups play and then eliminate part of the group and then recombine the groups to like play again until we had one group left that were all the winners. Yes. And just a couple like opening points about this. Just to remind people who get frustrated when we turn everything into a competition. It's not that we want everything to be a competition, but I've talked before about how one of at least my goals is to find a way to make freestyle competition more like freestyle and less like this separate sport that's like completely different from the actual thing called freestyle that we do every day. Um, this might be a losing battle. I mean, I think there's a lot to love about routine-based freestyle, but it's also just very strange to me how different it is from what we actually do. So just a reminder, like I get that it's not for everybody. And it was funny because we'll talk about some of the criticisms we got, but a lot of the criticism we got was like, it's like so subjective and like, <laughs> how are you supposed to judge jamming? And I was like, these are all problems that apply <laughs> equally to the routine-based system. Like it's all the exact same problems, except that it's actually like what freestyle is. So like, sure, those are all valid concerns, but it's not like 
we're avoiding those concerns through our current system. I know it's like when you enter your professor's papers into the AI grader and it's like, this was written by an AI. It was like you tricked someone into like, or it's like you like hide someone's own answers as someone else's and they're like, those are all wrong. It was, it was <laughs> very bewildering to me, like that aspect of the criticism. And, but like, thankfully, I feel like the, I have had the conversation at least like three or four times. And generally when I made the point that isn't that true of the competitive, <laughs> the current system, everyone's kind of like, oh yeah, I guess like I get that. Um, although I also think, and I'm, I know this isn't like the most organized, but obviously like we're doing this the night after first beer ends. Uh, I think one legitimate criticism is we didn't really have any metrics yet. Like no one really knew how it was being judged. Although I will say people clearly kind of had an idea because I think people were playing in a way that made sense to me. But okay, so things that like worked and things that didn't. So this was kind of nice because it was very informal and it's not like people signed up early. Like I don't even think there's a record of who won <laughs> or what happened. So it's not like there was a lot at stake here. So you and I were extremely experimental and liberal <laughs> and every single round we basically did a little bit differently. So. One thing that I will say I knew was never going to work, but it was like too late for me to do anything about it. it was in the very first round, we had like the biggest group of people. We picked one seeds, basically. We picked like whatever, the six best players. And they all stood in a corner. And then everyone else ran into a group based on like one of the people. So like you could go run to be an Edo's group or you could go run to be a Chesco's group or whatever. And then they jammed. But because we couldn't, they all jammed at the same time. And because no one could judge all six groups, the decision was made, I don't know by who, that the groups would decide themselves who moved on to the next round. And this proved very problematic because no one was particularly comfortable saying like, we three move on and you three leave. I floated the idea that the one seed could pick because it's basically like a buy like they're gonna make it to the next round and they can choose but like i understand that that's also a problem because the one seat's not actually comfortable kicking people out either and especially if like there were actual stakes there's lots of shenanigans that could happen in terms of the picking but i will say it was very exciting watching people randomize themselves into <laughs> groups and there would be a lot of interesting strategy to that because on the one hand you might be like because I've talked about one advantage of the systems, you get to jam with some of the best players. So you might be like, I really want to go jam with Edo. But then you might be like, yeah, but like sort of a bunch of other really good players. <laughs> and like I, if I was just trying to win, you'd be like, well, I should go to a group that has the least competition. But everyone sorted themselves very quickly into groups. Yep. And they were relatively even. I don't know. It's like kind of hard to judge that in real time. Um, but I do think one aspect of the whole experience was we, were tr we did the whole thing in like an hour, less than that. Yep. So, of course, if this was a proper format, I think we would take much more time and we could individually judge each group exactly. and it could be like much more methodical. So the first round, I think, was the biggest like disaster. And I think basically like half or more than half of the one seeds knocked themselves <laughs> out of their group. And there was some weird incentives or if you got knocked out, you got a free beer. So I think a lot of people were like, I would love to be knocked out in the first round <laughs> to get my free beer. So that didn't really work. Um, so then we went to the next round. And the next round was our first like big experiment where we decided that we were going to tap people out 
during the jam as like essentially the losers for lack of a better word so like people were jamming and we were kind of watching and we're like okay like we're ready to pull this person out like they're again there's no better ways to put this like they're not they're contributing to the jam the least so we'd run and we tap them out and i mean that like technically worked but i think it was like it was a negative way to decide who moves on rather than a positive way. So in the next round, we switched and we had them finish their jam. And then we had them stand in a line facing forward and we walked behind them and we tapped the shoulders of the people that were moving forward. And then all at the same time, the people who moved forward stepped forward. I like the drama of that. What I, I do like the drama. What I didn't realize was the people who didn't get tapped didn't realize what was happening till like, 10 seconds later. I think there was a lot of people not realizing <laughs> what was happening, which is fair. There was language barriers, time barriers. Mm-hmm. We've never done this before. Like, for instance, in the first round where we were tapping people out, we tapped a bunch of people who just kept jamming because they didn't <laughs> know why we were tapping them because they didn't really understand what we had tried to like explain before that. So that didn't really work that well. And then, whatever, we kind of did that until we got to the final group. They jammed. We did one thing cool in the last round that I liked where we basically called last catch and, and then every player got a chance to do their catch out, which was definitely exciting. I think it'd be like something where people could do an indie if they wanted, for instance, but everyone can like, show their best stuff. And there's a little bit of a pride element of you don't want to be the last one standing unless you're the last one to get the desk. If everyone catches in a row, fine, but you don't want to keep missing the last catch <laughs> yeah. and be stuck by yourself. But I thought that worked well. So I think pros or like things that were good because I think people play differently in a way that was good. What did you think? I saw exactly what you saw. It's like people were optimizing for production in the jam. Yeah. yeah. So for instance, we picked an MVP. And the MVP was Ollie from Berlin. And Ollie is an amazing player. He's really coming out as like one of the best players in the world. And I'm super excited about him. I, I call him like Vu2. He's like got a lot of like the moves and style of Vu but a little bit more than control. And you like lose something a little bit from Vu by having control, but you gain a lot more, like especially in terms of the competition. But he got MVP and I would not have like pegged him or expected him to get MVP based on all the players that were there. But I think he, I felt, and I'm like, sorry if I'm reading this wrong, but I felt like he changed the most about how he normally plays and normally jams in that setting. Yep, I thought he was really implementing a one-touch pass or catch methodology that suited him very well. Yeah. And he was picking the right moments to catch it and the right moments to pass it and just overall exemplify it, what I think makes a great jammer, right? Yeah. And I don't think it was particularly close for who should be MVP. Not close. Okay. Other things that were kind of interesting, and we're definitely going to have to do a lot of processing on our end to think about how to do... <coughs> <coughs> the next iteration but when we were judging i think our common experience is very quickly you would identify okay these two people are safe and these couple of people are on the bubble that we're fighting so one idea i had which might not work because it has a technology component but you seem to be more optimistic that it could work is this idea that everyone has like a band on and it's, if you become safe it lights up green and if you get knocked out it lights up red I kind of like the idea that before the jam is over, someone could do so well that they 
win the first slot. It's mm-hmm. almost like a buy within the round. Okay, you made it and you're safe. Yeah, because I think a lot of the problem is you don't know what's happening. Yeah. And it just like makes it very clear that what the state of the competition is right now. And it allows, because the state is so obvious, we can do like fancier things on top. Like when you're about to be cut, you can have like a last chance. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned a lot, and it kind of shows our perspective sometimes, what how it would work with announcers and how announcers would analyze what was happening and what we could do to build the format to make it more exciting. And some people might roll their eyes at that, but uh, it's really about making it audience-friendly and interesting, and announcers are a really big part of that, and building a system that's kind of easy to explain in real time to an audience could make it a lot more entertaining. A few other kind of interesting things that came out of it. I think <clears throat> I do think people kind of played maybe too safe at times because I think there was definitely a concern that oh, every time I drop it, I'm basically going to get knocked out, which I think once we build better metrics, we could balance better how we think people should approach taking some risk. I think there probably was too little time for each group. We didn't have a, we literally didn't have a timer and we had like no idea how long they'd been playing. And we probably moved too soon. Although at the same time, like a lot of times it was pretty clear right away who was doing better. Um, it was a little bit hard to overcome bias of like, that's Edo. And like Edo is really good and way better than these people. But how is he doing in this particular moment? And that's true with the regular judging system as well. Like we've talked repeatedly about how important reputation is. But I do think there are people that perform better than would be expected based on name alone. So I do think we were able to pick people that had a great jam, mm-hmm. even if they weren't the best players. So I think in the future, we'd have them play a little bit longer. We maybe have smaller groups. In a lot of ways, I think three is like the perfect size. Maybe there's a mob op category or like some tournaments you have groups of five or something. But I think if three players played for five minutes or so, that would be a pretty good sample to work from and give people the feeling that they had enough room to take take some chances. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And like get in a groove. And to be sure, it would take a while, but I don't think it would... I mean, again, you, I'm my vision is thinking this becomes a real tournament format and if your whole tournament was really just this jam format, it would take far less time than having four different routine-based divisions. So it'll be interesting to see it play out and if we can get people interested in doing it again. Because on the one hand, it's obviously easy to put it in something like Frisbeer as like a throwaway, we'll take an hour to do this, but we probably need an actual event to gamble on it, mm-hmm. to do it properly. Because if we keep doing the hour version of it, I mean, imagine doing all of open pairs in an hour. It, yeah. would just, it would be a far inferior product to what it ultimately could be. Um, one other kind of interesting like thought strategy aspect is what do you do when someone's not getting the disc enough? And what we kind of settled on is that's your fault if you're not getting the disc more because it means you're out of position a little bit and you're presenting an undesirable target for whatever reason. I also think it's easy for the judges to see if it's who's at fault. Yeah, I agree with that. I think we had a pretty good sense of that. Now, I definitely wonder what kind of shenanigans could happen if the stakes were higher and the players really cared. But again, I think you would be able to tell if it was three top tier players and two of them were edging out the third one. I think (laughs) you'd be like, why are they just doing a bunch of pairs combos? That's bad jamming and like bad etiquette. Mm -hmm. And I think you would be able to 
penalize them for that. But I think I said when we originally talked about this, there's always going to be a problem that once you define the metrics, people are going to abuse those metrics and like deform the intent of the, the format. But that's never been more true than in the routine-based system. So I don't think it's going to be a problem that's any worse. But I guess my final note on that is a big part of the interest in it is its effect on players. And is this a really... Like routine-based freestyle doesn't necessarily teach players very much about how to be a better freestyler. Maybe it makes you a little bit more consistent or something. I don't know. That's probably the best I can come up with. Just like practicing certain moves over and over again. But I think if you were playing in the jam format a lot, you would become a much better jammer. Do you think you can hide your weaknesses in the routine much easier than compared to the jam format? Absolutely. I was talking to Katie about this. Like There are top tier players in the world who played for 10 plus years, won multiple world's house, who couldn't delay it on one hand. And that's only possible in a routine-based system. In a jam-based system, that would really be exposed a lot more, I think. It also, like, everything we talk about, like, this is so important in freestyle, but no one bothers to learn it because it's not important. The like, counter would become way more important yep. in the jam-based format. If you were paired with two counter players and you were <laughs> clock, you would be really up creek. So things that we value as a community that don't get valued in the routine-based system would be a lot more valuable. Just like versatility, spontaneity, decision-making, setting, all these things that don't really factor in that much into the routines would be super significant in the jam format. So we'll keep exploring that. Is there anything else on the jam format or anything? I don't think so. Uh, the only thing I would say is I <laughs> played in the first round where it was like chaotic mm -hmm. and I could tell that everyone was focused on, like, I feel like everyone knows, like everyone, you like go into a jam and you're like, why isn't this hot? Mm -hmm. Like, it's very easy to think it's like, oh, these people just don't know how to jam. But when I was in that first round, I was like, everyone knows how to jam and everyone's making the right decision. Well, it's funny you say that because the one thing I meant to say that I forgot to say, there were two new players, one of whom I can't remember who it was, but one of them was one of the new young Italian women players. And I jammed with her a couple of times this weekend. But her jamming in the jam format was 10 <laughs> times better than anything I saw her do outside of it. and. I take that as a good sign. I can't really explain it, but I don't know. It's almost like it incentivizes good behavior that we all know. So I'm intrigued. We'll certainly be interested. I would love for people to write flag or counter with their experience of it. I do think we probably got more negative feedback than anything, which is fine. You know, we'll try to grow from that and learn from that. But I still think there's an opportunity here. And I hope a poor initial implementation doesn't, prevent people from having continued interest in it. Yeah, the feedback I want is something you think isn't fixable. Yeah. So like the pools or the groups weren't seated correctly, but like we can fix that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's <laughs> funny. I was just saying, well, we'd also have feedback on things that are fixable because we'll fix them. But that's a great example yeah. of like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not, yeah, that's not really the problem. Uh, that's interesting. Um, but yeah, we get it. It wasn't exactly perfect. It's very funny. And the conversations I had about it, how much people take routine-based freestyle for granted. They don't even, it doesn't even occur to them that A, it's nothing like regular freestyle, or B, it's completely arbitrary that that's how we do it. Because the number of people that I talked to about it where I brought up this point about, well, why do we have routine-based freestyle? And basically everyone was like, huh, like I never thought about that. And it was just shocking to me. It's like, yeah, like it's kind of crazy. 
Like it like actually makes no sense. And again, like I do think there's a lot to love about it. And I think there should always be a place for routine-based freestyle and for no other reason than like tradition. Like it's fine to have this like, cool format, but it's crazy to me that every single tournament in the world for 50 years has been routines for some reason. And then I also think a lot of people cite not liking competition for that reason. They're like, oh, I don't want to put routines together. It's like too much work. It's like, yeah, I agree. Like part of why I'm retiring is the idea of taking, like let's say uh, I put in a couple hundred hours a year into freestyle. The idea that I'm going to take like 50 of those precious hours and devote them to this like arbitrary, not freestyle <laughs> aspect that's like not that fun necessarily is kind of insane. Do you know chess is doing the exact same thing we're trying to do right now? Really? Yeah, it's called Chess 960. So what they do is they randomize the starting places of all the pieces yeah. right before you play and you can't prep. So you, there's like no prep. You just play chess from the very start. I think that's pretty interesting. I have to think more about it. But like the fact that they're doing it makes us doing it that much more obvious because mm -hmm. it's not like chess players are always playing randomized for fun mm -hmm. and only play traditionally in competition. But that's how it is in free shots. Like we always play a particular way. No one's ever shown up to the GM and be like, what song are we going to use today <laughs> to build our routine? Um, and I, you know, I also have this thought that clearly there are some players that really just like the routine based aspect of it. Like I'll use like Paul Kenny's example. Now I think Paul probably likes jamming more, but as he gets older, it's harder to jam for long periods of time. So he's really, focus on routine building, which I think is a very smart way to proceed with your career. But if we kind of lose a few people that really like routine based, but we gain many, many more people because they like the gym part, then that's kind of like a sacrifice I'm willing to make, for lack of a better word. Um, so just a thought. So send us your feedback at clockercounter.com and our 10 year plan to build something new. We'll All right. So now we have our five things, five observations of Frizz beer. Ryan, why don't you start? Okay, I'm going to start with Daniel Weinbark being, <coughs> the most, being the most improved player from the last time I saw him. Like, I played with him in open pairs this year. And when we were warming up, I was like, was Daniel always this good? And I was like, no, he's just gotten way better since the last time I saw him. I completely agree. He was a revelation. He did really great in open pairs. He did really great in turbo shred. I think when I watched all semis round, I told him afterwards, it was by far the most comfort comfortable I'd ever seen him in competition. And I think I said at the time, I think you were there too. I was sort of like, that's probably like the Ryan effect of like playing with you and getting like your coaching. But then he seemed to bring yep. all that to every other round. So yeah. Like, I really think it is rooted mostly in just, like, his own improvement. I agree, because I saw it in when he was playing with other people as well. And I actually had a long talk with him this morning about some ideas about routines that he implemented and came up to me afterwards and said were helpful. And I was like, yeah, like, I saw you, like, just, like, instantly do, like, the 10 <laughs> things I told you, which is not easy to do, especially when you've, like, already planned everything. It's, like, very <laughs> impressive. But clearly, sorry, my throat feels terrible. Clearly, he is really like thinking about the game. And like he told me he listened to our podcast where we analyzed his routine with Andre. And I don't know, he's just like doing all the right things. He was amazing. Um, his form is great. His throws are amazing. He looks really smooth when he plays. And I think his, he's mostly counter, but his clock game is really, yeah. really good. Like I didn't really notice a big difference between clock or counter anymore. 
I know after our finals run, he's like, wow, I've never played that much clock before. And it was like, felt fine. Yeah. Yeah. He was awesome. All right. On the similar theme, my number one thing is Christian Lamrad is <laughs> amazing at freestyle. So he was an unexpected participant in Frisbeer. I haven't seen him in years. And I know one of our first episodes, we ranked number one players in the world. So if you do listen to that, remember, we took every player who had been ranked number one since like 1990. And Christian Lambert, I think, was like actually in the middle, but if not the middle, like in the lower half. And that was probably, and I think we said at the time, like we don't know a ton about, like even though we grew up with the, we kind of grew up in a freestyle community where he was a big part. I never really jammed with him. I only saw him in competition and he was obviously good in competition. That's why he was the number one player in the world. But I wasn't necessarily like, this is one of the all-time great freestyles I've ever seen. <coughs> no, I feel like I can say that because of what I'm about to say. But I had a jam with him for like 45 minutes. I was like, he is so good at freestyle. <laughs> and I feel like the other Germans were like, yeah, no doubt. Of course, he's really good at freestyle. Like everyone knows this except for you. I think because they've actually gotten to jam with him a lot like outside of competition, but I never see him outside of competition. But First of all, like I definitely won, like this is an observation, but it could be like an honorable mention. I feel like the generation divide a lot and I had a lot of jams is kind of what I think it was my generation. And I felt extremely comfortable. And then I had a lot of jams like newer players and I felt like much less comfortable. When I played with Christian Lambrot, it was like we were twins. It's like we'd been, we'd grown up in the same house. Like we, I felt like we really like saw what to do in the same way and was super smooth, flowy. We were like, I feel like we were both hitting really incredible moves, but it wasn't like none of them were indies. Like they were all part of like really like sophisticated co-op. I don't know. It was like truly awesome. And like this, I've talked about this before. It's kind of embarrassing to say something like this because I don't want him to be listening at home being like, that gym was average. I don't <laughs> think he would do that because he came up to me like multiple times a day and was like, that's a good jam. So like, I think we both had a great jam, but I just rescind whatever I said in my prior podcast. He has shot up my personal rankings, clock, counter, every move, decision-making, incredible. And to put a little damper on, like I thought his competition was what I've seen before. Like it was re- really good. That's why he's the number one player in the world. But like relatively speaking, I was like, that's fine. But his jamming was like <laughs> crazy. And that's not like what Carl's is known as like, the superb competitors. And I'm like, no, it's competition is like his floor, (laughs) his which is true for most people. So like, maybe we were just being short-sighted. Like most people are far better at freestyle than they show in competition. If you judge me based on my competition, I would be very upset about that. But anyways, he's awesome. So Christian, you're certainly not listening, but if someone knows Christian, Tell him to check out the section podcast <laughs> okay. where I talk about how he is incredible. All right, you're up. Anything to add to that? You didn't jam with him, I don't think. I jammed with him a little bit and it was really good. Yeah. Yeah. It was already after you told me your review. Yeah. So I was expecting it. And it, yeah, he lived up to the hype. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So my next one is Frisbeer needs more people to show up. Yeah. Like this year was smaller than last year, which was like smaller than any of the other years. And it's like helpful for motivation and like logistics, like money wise, it makes a big difference <laughs> if there's 80 people showing up for the tournament versus 50 people. 
So it must be just me because I truly felt like there was way more people this year than last year. That I'm, I brought this up several times and everyone was like, what are you talking about? There's definitely less people. So numerically, yeah, we need more people. But something about this tournament felt like much fuller than like the last year. Or two Maybe because you're retired, you're not like comparing all the teams or something. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was like people were jamming more or just like a looser atmosphere. But it's also funny too, because I think I come from like a regular tournament perspective, like 50 people at a regular tournament would be... <laughs> spectacular oh, yeah. um but like it's sad that first beer was you know like approaching triple digits and now it's gone down and it seems like it's just like such an easy tournament to get to if you're in europe right in the middle of everything it's very affordable here everything is taken care of you just have to go to one place every day you don't have to worry about weather you're gonna get lots of great jams it's cheap like just come to first beer so ryan and i've talked about it we're definitely going to start calling people for big events and like you need to come to first beer you need to go to worlds to see if we can kind of like revive the number of players because i think it's really a lot related to covid since covid our numbers of events have been way down and i think people got out of the habit and we need to get them back on the habit i like that idea it's the habit yes anything else on the numbers i think that's it expect a call from us for worlds in poland this year yeah i mean i guess the only thing to add like if you're thinking like you know, we talk so much about spreading the jam and growing the sport. One of the best things you can do is just come to first beer. Because look, I've I've if I haven't said it before, I'll say again, like, I don't think tournaments are where like we get new freestylers, for instance. Like that's probably not the most efficient way. But imagine a world where there isn't a first beer. Like that would be catastrophic to the freestyle scene. And, you know, even like Edo was talking to me today, he's like worried that. He was like, I worry that if you don't compete, you'll be less motivated. I'm like, I'm sure you're right about that. But putting me aside, like that's probably true for everybody. And so if we lack tournaments, I think it like destroying people's motivation to freestyle is just a net negative. First beer has been one of the bedrocks of our freestyle community. And so we have to support it. And the best way to do that is to come. And again, like if first beer dies, like our sport probably dies with it. So please come to first beer. Again, if there was almost 100 before and now we're at 50, 50% less people is 50% less money and the gym gets more expensive every year. So like the math just doesn't work unless more people come. So please come to Frizz Beer. If you're listening now, put it on your calendar right now, like the whole month of February, <laughs> block it off, come to Frizz Beer. Okay, anything else on that? Nope. What's your next one? Number two, execution does not matter enough. I've said this before. <laughs> I don't think he'll mind. I got a text from Dougie Fresh, New York legend, during the tournament. He was watching the live stream. He said, maybe I'm old and cranky and can't count to 10, but I watched whatever round. I won't say what it was. Is catching the Frisbee, is catching the Frisbee too old school? I would rather catch, watch the catch monster all day. Who is she? I'm not sure who he was referring to there. It's probably like Zofia. But basically he's saying, does no one care about catching anymore? Because... <laughs> It used to be when we went to major tournaments, the top four or five teams dropped it like three times or less. Like maybe it was outside and the conditions were fairly be more, like especially like an indoor round. Like if you go back to like 2011 indoor Prague, like the first four or five teams hardly dropped it. Um, like I definitely think in the old system, once I dropped it more than three times, I was like, it's probably not going to happen for us. But nowadays, it's like people, like basically every team drops it 10 times. 
And some of that's probably judging session related. Some of it might be skill related, but I'll talk more about that for one of my other points. <coughs> but like, frankly, I don't like it. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell a story that I told a long time ago that really affected me. Like I definitely, you know, I've said before, I didn't really necessarily like want to make a new judging system. But one thing I definitely was very adamant about the old system was that execution counted too much. And that seemed to be like the general consensus, like every email back on the old listserv about the judging system was about how execution mattered way too much. It was way too important. But I remember Claudio Chinia sent an email once where he was like, I think, rhetorically asked, but isn't catching like really important? <laughs> and I remember that like actually really like fundamentally affected my view of the system where I thought, you know, he's right about that and catching by any metric by anyone's standard it's probably maybe even the most if you pick one thing that is the most important thing to do in our sport it's to (laughs) catch the frisbee and that doesn't mean the old system wasn't right i think it's still valued execution too much because you could probably count the number of drops to know who won and who lost and i think there are plenty of situations where a team with worse execution should win but i feel like no team should win with the number of drops we saw this weekend and we were sort of talking and you mentioned that Matt used to kind of say this was a good idea, but for kind of different reasons, like it's, it's almost like if you drop it 10 times, you can't win. Like maybe <laughs> no team wins, but there's a certain point we're having some recorder issues here. Hang on. Okay. Maybe we'll just go here. But yeah. you like every time you hit the table, it's okay, I'm not hitting the table anymore. Okay. I'm gesticulating too much. Okay. Uh, there should just be like a maximum number or a minimum number of drops that once you hit it, you're just not allowed to win. <laughs> Because no one wants to say, here's the winning routine that had 12 drops. In it. Yep. Matt's specific idea was you had free drops. So maybe you'd have like a floor and a ceiling. Yeah. So it's like you had a cutoff where you like get disqualified. But the other end, if you have two drops, then it's like doesn't penalize you at all. Yeah. But generally, it's just a call to all freestylers that yeah. you just like go back to cash. It. And again, like I think obviously you could say, well, like everyone's trying to catch it. I think maybe they're just not as skilled from the past. I'm not totally sure that's true, but we'll talk about that. But I do think everyone who played in the old system, you did everything in your power to catch the disc. It was that important. And we need a pinch of that now. <laughs> just in like one of the ways I notice it is under the old system, if you dropped it two times in a row, the next 10 things you did were going to be firmly in the comfort zone. <laughs> you were going to do everything. But now, you know, it's like people are incentivized after a couple drops to just go crazier and crazier. And I just think, why are you making that decision? If and maybe part of this whole thing is because I wasn't competing this year, I was watching routines through a different lens. I think normally, like you can say what you want, you can say this like maybe to do, but I, I see everyone in the world do it. If you're watching your routine and you're competing, and you think, oh, like they've dropped it five times, great. Like now the window's open for me. This will be easy to win, and you start thinking about, well, what can I do differently now that I know? Would you have no stake in it? And you're just watching people drop it over and over again. You're just like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> why are you doing that? I would like to make the decisions for you to fix these egregious errors that are leading you to drop it. But probably something needs to change the jetting system. But if nothing else, I hope people will change their mindset a little bit and routine building and routine decision making to catch it more. Okay. Your thoughts? I have one PSA, okay. just to counterbalance. We're going to change the judging system this year at the end of it. Mm-hmm. It's easy to have a knee-jerk reaction. It's like, let's just make execution more, like way more. But 
No, what you should do is be like, what do we actually want? We want people to catch. And there's like a way to do that without just making execution way more. That's that's it. That's yeah. fair. That's a great point. I have no particular way that I would make execution yeah. matter more. And again, like I think just like I think the current system was probably a far too extreme response to the old system. We don't want to make the same mistake again. Yeah. But there is like I think I've made this up in the context is the Hegelian dialectic. You start on one side, you go to the other extreme, and then you work your way to the middle. You keep iterating until you get to the right point. So I think we just need to keep iterating until we get execution right. But I mean, frankly, it kind of goes to my whole ex post ex ante thing. The nice thing about the old system is it taught people the importance of execution <laughs> because they got punished so heavily for dropping it that it made you realize how important catching was. Whereas the current system doesn't teach you anything about that. <laughs> So maybe it's a better system in terms of assessing like who the best team is, but it's not a better system in terms of making players better or something like that. I don't know. I'd have to work on that. Um, okay, you're up. All right. Okay, so mine is the judging system was an afterthought to me, which is a positive thing because normally that's all I'm thinking about at a tournament because I'm running it. But this year, this event was the first time I handed it off to someone else completely and Timic just like took over. He like set up all the pools, picked all the judges, like did all the work. And I was just sitting there being support and it was amazing. It worked flawlessly and I just like didn't even think about it. <clears throat> That's great. I only judged one time because I wasn't competing and it worked perfectly and there was no hiccups with the judging system at all, which as we said before, has been the case for multiple years now. <laughs> so I think we're in a good place, but it's nice to know. Like you, like traditionally, you've always had to review the results after the rounds yep. to make sure there was nothing crazy, but you didn't even do that this time. No. That's great. Um, okay, I'm really going to the system. My third one, and I'm trying, I'm probably being like too pod class clever here. I'm not sure if this is actually true, but this is my clever way of putting it. I think the median level of play was high, but the average level of play might have been low. Okay, let me... Break down what that means. Okay. Oh, oh you, I'll do, you, I'll, you, you. Well, and it's all it's all relative. So I would say, just like based on my expectation or what I've seen in the past, the median level of play was higher than I expected, but the average level of play was lower. So it's like a strong middle class. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like the median right is you take all the values and you just pick the midpoint. Um, whereas the average is you add all the things and divide by where people. I think people know median and average. If you don't, send us an email and I'll explain it to you. But the idea here is that kind of like there's a bunch of players in the middle that are all like kind of better than expected, but there aren't as many extreme highs or as extreme lows. So I feel like in the past, like kind of like almost like the baseline level of play was much lower, but you had Matt Gauthier and Jake Gauthier and Dave Murphy and like all these like all time superstars. And then you also had, you know, like 15 players who could barely delay it. So in some ways, this is a good thing. Like, Strong middle class. It's kind of like a good thing in all aspects of the world. But it's also a little bit concerning that I would like there to be more like super high level talent. And also I would like there to be more low level talent because having more low level talent means there's more new players coming in. Um, although again, as every year I come to Frisbee, there's like three or four new players that I've never seen before. So I do think that still is a very positive trend. Um, do you agree with that assessment or disagree? I agree yeah i agree and i because and i thought about it because i heard i think sleepy and like a few other people say like they were surprised at how good everyone was and i tended to agree as sort of 
often surprised at like what was happening in jams. I can't believe that person can do that. But at the same time, top line, I wasn't super impressed. Besides like the obvious people like Edo, who's always just like absolutely amazing. Not always in competition, but like or like relative to his skill, but jamming with him is like, I don't know, it's like a religious experience. It's incredible. Um now I feel bad. It's like unfair. Like he's still like way better than everyone else in competition. It's just like what relative to what he does, like normally. I'm like, if you did everything you do in a jam, it's not well. like I said, everyone's worse in competition. Um but like other than that, there's not like part of what I was thinking about too is there's only one person here that I want to impress, which is Edo. Like everyone else, <laughs> I just like don't care about. But like I told Edo, like I get nervous when I play with you. I don't, it's like how I used to feel if I played with like Joey or something. Like nobody else I care about. Not that I don't care, but like I feel like I'm gonna shred, it doesn't matter. Like I'm just gonna do my thing and you're gonna be impressed. With Edo, I'm like, okay, like I hope I don't mess up too much. And like I'm worried that it affects my play because I'm you're in self one mode. Like I'm yeah, exactly. I'm like I'm thinking too hard about what I'm doing and I'm changing my game <laughs> to like try to fit in somehow. I don't know. Like I think you know, now I'm kind of running a little bit like Michael was asking me for competition advice, or maybe it was someone else asking me about jamming advice. But I think I told him like the number one thing is like to always play your own game and like not get like too caught up trying to be something you're not because being something you're not is harder than being what you are. So I was falling into that trap when I was playing with Edo. Um, but like, it bums me out that there's only one Edo. And it used to be, because I've talked before about how I think I like most playing in situations where I'm really trying to, yes, like, look what I, like, I'm, I'm like getting better and like, I'm learning all these things. And I used to be like, every jam was like that. Now there's just less people that are amazing. And there are lots of other amazing players. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm fixing on Edo because we played a lot. Like, I didn't get to jam a lot with Chesco. Like, Chesco was amazing. I had one last jam with him I told you where I kept doing, like, really basic foot taps because that's, like, the <laughs> hardest thing for me and I've been working on it for 15 years. But I feel bad. I don't think he understood what I was trying to do. I think he was, like, confused and maybe thought I was, like, teasing him. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, I'm teasing myself. Like, this took me 15 years to learn a basic foot tap. I'm not, I'm not like, insulting you. I'm insulting myself. I hope he understood that. Um, anyways, I rambled, but that's my third point. Okay. All right. So my my fourth. Yes. Okay. People do not put enough slick on their discs. That was my fourth. <laughs> All right. I have an extra one. Though. Okay. So when Pro Slick first came out, it was like <laughs> 2017, 2018. After 2018 Worlds finished, as a joke, I was like, I'm going to put three times as much slick on this. So there's like depth on the disc. And we played with it. I was like, this is better. And if there's not a solid coating of slick on the disc, you're losing something, especially at the low end, which is where the drops happen. I couldn't agree more. It took me probably till the middle of day two to realize this because I was struggling in certain jams and I couldn't really figure out why. And then just one moment it hit me. I was like, this disc isn't slick. <laughs> and like things that normally work do not work because it's not slick. And then I had a conversation with Graf where I brought this point up and Graf said, yeah, that's why I bring my own disc to every jam, even though it's kind of a faux pas. <laughs> and by the way, I'm sure if Graf brought his disc, I wouldn't think it had enough. <laughs> so after that point, I started bringing my own disc to the jam. And even for me, I didn't have enough slick on my own disc because I don't have the best disc. And 
everyone commented in like a negative way. They're like, that's so slick. And I kept being like, no, 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 like, this is correct. Just trust me. If like I get any cred, let me apply it to getting you to use this slicker disc. And I mean, truly you can't go in the rim. You can't do anything against in the rim or it will just die. And it's like, like just like dirt, like just basic stuff. And it's like, okay, cool. I guess I can roll it more easily and throw it a little bit more easily. But you've taken away. So if you think about it, like extra slick is like a safety net. It's like so much can go wrong because you're still going to have spin on the disc. But once the safety net's gone, every time anything isn't 100% perfect, the disc dies. And for a lot of the disc I use, even if you did it perfectly, it just would not work because it gets stuck. Yeah. I mean, one like weird way to put it is like the disc catches here. That never ha- I've never had my disc catch. Like, yeah, it just exactly. will like run out of spin faster than it's supposed to, but it will never like get stuck on my finger and like fling off to the side. Like that happened a lot here. And I also didn't know if like some people hadn't moved to Pro Slick and were still using Hand Slick, but based on all the complaints I got, I think people just think you need less slick, but they're crazy. My hand, your hands should feel gross after you slick the disc. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's not, I would love to have the best of both worlds, but you can't. And one world is far better than the other. Okay, no one's gonna agree with this. They're, they're, <laughs> you know, I always say like, I don't really know, we're all just guessing, I might be wrong. I know we are. Okay, so I'll have to add another one. So my fourth one now, is there's a lot of counter. A lot. <laughs> that was my fifth one. No way, really? <laughs> yeah. So a lot of GMs had a bunch of counter in it, okay. which is really cool. Um, I think we might have different perspectives on this. Like, Obviously, I've been a big proponent of DSAA, and it's cool that so many people are focused on counter. But I do think there are a couple problems with it. A, like one thing I mentioned to you the other day is that we're all standing in clock positions, and then someone throws counter, and like we're all out of position. And people aren't really, I don't know, good enough, experienced enough, used to reconfiguring into a counter position. And I do think in like a future where people are way better at freestyle, instead of like switching back and forth every combo between clock and counter, like we're going to do like five clock things, then we'll do five counter things. Like if your goal was equality, you wouldn't alternate. You would probably do something a little bit more like in batches because you could be in the right position. It's like that to me, I think was a little bit distracting. I'd be like, cool, you just threw a counter we're all lined up wrong and no one was moving to the right place. And I think people just like aren't even used to it, which brings me to point two, <coughs> which is that the counter game is that symmetrical to the clock game. Now you could say that's a bonus. I think I've talked about this before. Like you could say, like if you're building the, a new jammer, would you want them to be BSAA symmetrically, which is like my personal preference? Or would you be like, you know what? There's actually an advantage to building your counter game independently because it'll be very different. And like what's the like maybe you would even say like what's the point of having symmetrical clock and counter games might as well like enjoy the variance but to me like everything in the counter side is just like worse it's like instead of brushing the natural lefty counter brush everyone's hyper bashing it all the time and like a lot of the counter is really just upside down clock and we're like letters kicking it all the time and not really like all these things that we naturally do clock all the time that are very logical and sensible, like nobody does those in counter. So a few examples, like I was telling you how I love giving people like kick sets where you just like set up a two-handed throw and they kick it. You do that 
clock, everyone does the most natural thing in the world, which is to kick it with their right foot. If I said that you counter, you should kick it with your left foot almost every time. You can mix it up with some righties in there. Like the left looks better. It works better as long as you're like, you know, equally skilled at left or right. I get that it's not your dominant side. And it's just like a thousand times more natural. Like everything is like a little bit unnatural about how people play counter, um, even among like counter players. Like we've <laughs> yeah. been flirting with this idea that there's like a counter player effect. Like unless you're left-handed, a lot of people who learn counter first, like there's something like uncanny valley, unnatural about their game. It's like playing counter. It's like how people who learn different languages think differently because they have a different vocabulary. Yeah. And unfortunately, like the counter way is like, not the <laughs> optimal way to think. I don't know. We could be wrong about that. But like on the one hand, I'm very impressed with the amount of counter. But I think we need to be like thinking about the next, like how to implement it better. Your thoughts? I totally agree. So my specific point was the new players at first year were all counter this year. Hmm. That's true. There's definitely like, especially like Munich is a very counter heavy freestyle scene. Yeah. It's like a lot of people are in counter, but also like a lot of the Polish players are yeah, counter like, too. Yeah. <coughs> Although I will say like a lot of the more experienced counter players have been playing like way more clock. Like you already mentioned Daniel. I think like Zofia's clock has like come a, a really long way. Um, sounds so good. All right. So now you're, we're both going to need our honorable mention. So yes. what's your number five? There were. So many women players at Frisbeer for the second year in a row, which yeah. is such a good thing. Yeah, I think for the last few years, we've seen that like women have been like the fastest growing demographic in the sport. Like mixed and like mixed, especially probably something like problematic by the statement, like mixed, especially has become like a bloodbath. It's like the most um, competitive, but cut, cut a lot of the time. And I can like easily imagine a world where there's more mixed teams and like open pairs teams. <laughs> like if you took all the women players here and what took them to Columbia, you would have had more mixed teams than open team, assuming not every woman played an open pair. Because there's only like whatever, 10 or 12 open pairs teams, which was a catastrophe, which we talked about. But like we could have easily had a 12 person, 12 team. Maybe we did have 12 teams. I don't know. But we had a lot of teams. Yeah. It's like 10. But we had plenty of women who didn't even play. Yeah. Yeah. We had five women's teams at Prisbeer this year and those four at Columbia. Yeah, and yeah. there was plenty of years when we first started playing where there were like two or three yeah. women's teams and worlds. So that's a trend that I hope continues. Okay, my last one, something I've said before in context. This is a little bit of an exaggeration, more like podcast talk, because I can think of like 10 other things, including decision making, that are also a factor here. But music is the number one thing holding back players who would otherwise be winning. <laughs> There's still so many teams that go out there, and I just think if you just don't change anything, just, I'll take the video of your routine and I'll just slap another song underneath it <laughs> without, without factoring in that you're not even playing to the song <laughs> in the video. And I will add 25 points to your total. <laughs> like it was, there's still like so many just frankly bizarre music choices. And to get ahead of some prison, okay, I get that like not everyone's going to like the music that I've chosen in my routines. The music I've done in my routines is not necessarily music I even listen to. Like I, Pick it because I think it has good routine things. Two, as I've said before, like, come at me. Like, I played the alternative rock, jazz, like, classical. People sometimes try to peg me as having, like, a musical category. But just look at every routine I've ever won Worlds to, and you'll find that the music is very diverse. And for me, it's not about, like, what genre it's in or, like, what style of music it's in. It's, it's 
really basic things that matter to a routine. What is the tempo of the song? Does it have crescendos? Does it have space? Does it have pauses? Like all these things matter far more than like what genre of music you're in. And so many routines just like lack any of the necessary elements. Like that song is too fast. There's no chorus verse bridge. It's just like one beat that starts at the beginning and never ends. And it's just bewildering. There are some people that consistently pick good music. Um, I don't feel confident naming them now, but there's other players who I think you could win so much more if someone else picked your music. But I'm not going to give people that unsolicited advice because I don't <laughs> think they would take it very well. Okay, also you remember me one other thing that I noticed at this world or this frisbee, the point totals were really low, and I think that's because people played badly. So like the winning, like I think all the winning scores were like around a hundred. Maybe like co-op was more. I could, I don't remember. But like the pair, like a lot of like there were winning teams that had like eighty points. Our co-op in twenty twenty two had like two hundred points. Right? We also had more judges, so it's oh, because there's only six judges. Yeah. Is that so you why? can't compare it to Columbia? We can compare it to okay. All right, that answers that. I was trying to figure out like what, like I don't know if that would be a good thing or a bad thing. Like is the like are the scores actually like reflecting that people aren't playing as well? But it was only six. Is there another tournament where we had six judges? Didn't we have six for one world's round? Yeah, the co-op. Got it. Do you remember what the winning score was? Uh, it was like a 120, maybe. Okay. But 200 is still like way more than 100 because it would only be like yeah. a third more, like 150 to 200. So that's interesting. Anyways, it was just like one more thing. Uh, any honorable mentions left on your list? That was the end of my list. Um, okay, anything else we need to talk about? I don't think so. Expect calls from us adding you to go to future events. Please send us feedback at clockercounter.com or you can email us at clockercounter at gmail.com. Again, we had people come up to us who say listen to the podcast. That's super inspiring. And the unexpected people like that new freestyle Michelle who told us to be anxious with the podcast. I don't even know how she heard of it, <laughs> but shout out to you, Michelle. Um, so if you like it, I hope you know we continue to do something that people find valuable. But if we have an audience of five, like that's good enough for me and probably good enough for you, right? Yeah. All right. With that, we'll talk to you next time. I guess one last thing. Thank you, Jakob Koschel. Thank you, <laughs> the Frisbee crew. We really need y'all. And we really appreciate what you do and what you put in. And everyone knows how important it is. So I hope that you can stay motivated. We've talked a lot about how we struggle with motivation, so we know what it's like. But you're really important. And if there's anything we can do to have that clear. All right. Talk to you next time.